Introducing the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. With 25 million copies in print, learn how the Don't Sweat Wisdom can help you achieve greater mental health and better communication with your family, friends, and coworkers from a beloved teacher. Rediscover your passion, joy, and self-compassion to awaken your most vibrant life. Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. Oh my gosh, I have such a treat for you today. I can't wait to share with you the wonderful guests that I have that we'll be speaking with in just a little while. But let's just go ahead and take our golden pause, like we always do, and get really present in our bodies. So if you're driving, just pay attention to the road, but otherwise just sit very comfortably and with your legs uncrossed, your hands open on your lap, and just begin to breathe with me. So breathe in through your nose, and as you do so, allow your chest and your belly to expand. And just take in that breath. And as you exhale, exhale out any fear, any tension, any anxiety that you're holding on to in your shoulders, your neck, your arms, your hands, your legs. Just let it all go. This time as you breathe in, breathe in light. Breathe in pure golden sunlight to every cell of your being. And as you exhale, let go of fear, go of tension, let go of any anticipation or anxiety or anything that you're holding on to. And this time as you breathe in, just breathe in love. Breathe in love to every cell of your being and fill your heart with just nothing but pure love. And as you exhale, let go of what doesn't serve you. And this time as you breathe in, place your hand on your heart, activating your heart, opening your heart. Just think of one thing or several things that you feel incredibly grateful for, filling your heart with that yummy, most amazing feeling of gratitude. So much to be grateful for. Just hold on to that for just a moment. Breathing in just pure love and gratitude. And as you exhale, just open your eyes. Just notice how present you feel in your body and, and just how good that feels to just tune into your heart and soul and tune into your gratitude. Well, I'm so excited um, today because I opened up an email last week and mm-hmm. I, um, I'm on Marianne Williamson's email list and I opened up an email and she said she had a new book that came out. And so I immediately got on my email and I I zapped her an email, will you please be on my podcast? (laughs) And she's so gracious. I mean, this woman is one of the most gracious women for being such a spiritual leader and thought leader. And she has this complete graciousness. She's always been so sweet and available to me in whatever I've asked her to do. And so I'm so excited to share with you today um, about her new book. From Tears to Triumph, or just Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. So, 
Um, renowned spiritual teacher and best-selling author Marianne Williamson offers a spiritual perspective on the epidemic of depression now sweeping our society. Joining with a growing chorus of voices now raised in response to the over-medication of America, Williamson questions the, the appropriation of deep sadness as a medical issue based on a career of over three decades counseling people in depression even life-challenging situations. And drawing as well from her own deep periods of grief, Williamson argues that much of what today is referred to as depression is not a medical disease, but rather a spiritual disease. Williamson argues against what she calls the patholog pathologizing of normal oh, human suffering. How, does, how do you say that? <laughs> There you go. Looking at the radical application of love and forgiveness as spiritual solutions to a spiritual disease. With her usual references to A Course in Miracles, plus an in-depth inquiry into the spiritual responses to suffering within the stories of Buddha, Moses, and Jesus, Williamson opens a much-needed conversation about the sources of our sadness, as well as its transcendence. So I have to say, Marianne, welcome first of all, and, and thank you so much with all my heart for being with us here on this podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Christine. It's an honor. and I, I'm always excited to be with you, to talk to you, to work with you, so thank you for having me. Oh, so fun. Well, I, I've just been pouring through your book. I haven't finished the entirety of it, but I've gotten through the first four chapters. It's all highlighted everywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't want to gush too much, but I do have to say you are one of the brilliant writers of our time. And I know Richard thought so, and I have so many of my friends in the field um, that just, they, we, we just relish every word that you write. And it's, it's also your speaking too, whenever I've been sitting in your audience or on your live streams, you know, you have a way of, there's just such a purity of how it comes through you, and I, I feel that your writing is just so beautiful. So I just want to thank you for all the work that you do for the world. I mean, well, thank you so much, Christine. I, I so appreciate that, and I, I feel great regard for you as well, and you know I did for Richard too. So it feels like there's a, a triangle here, and he, he's not gone, right? Right, absolutely, absolutely. So first of all, you know, why From Tears to Triumph Now, like in your career? I mean, you have such an amazing list of books. And was this a book that's just been culminating in you for years to write? Or how, how did this come about? You know, I ran for Congress a couple of years ago. And at the end of, of, of the campaign, about two or three days later, uh, Maria Schreiber interviewed me. And she asked me if I was sad. And I said, no, not really. And she said, not really, you're not sad? I said, well, you know, you don't enter a political campaign knowing, you know, knowing you're going to win. Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. And um, I said, no, not sad. She said, well, I had a cousin who ran for Congress and lost, and he was really depressed for a long time. And I, I said, no, I just, sadness, no. Well, around two or three days later, I was sitting in my apartment, and I remember the moment it happened. It was like I saw a black wave coming at me. And I knew what had happened here was that I had been in shock and that I, I guess, I was in like shock, and I knew that some huge wave was coming at me. And what followed, well, it was a three-month, it was like clockwork. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like, I don't know what that is with a woman's menstrual period, with colic babies, where there's a, you know, or when you have a 24-hour virus or 
or 12 hour virus minute, you know, to the minute. But there was one phase of the phenomenon that occurred for three months. Then there was another phase that occurred for another three months. And then after six months, I had another six months where my psyche was bruised. And I had been deeply depressed before. Um, so it wasn't something I didn't know, but it is, it was definitely a profound, profound experience. And I thought of it in terms of how many people that I know of and who I've heard of who have been medicated. And what I think of is I think a lot of people think of as over medication today because periods of depression are not always, you know, we, 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 we've made that word into something that it does not have to be made into you know, there is a spectrum of normal human suffering. You certainly having lost the great love, your husband, the father of your children. This is a profound period of depression, but it is not a mental illness. Um, what I went through losing campaign, where it's nowhere e even near what you went through losing Richard, um, at least in this physical plane, was very painful, but it's not a mental illness. And so many people today go through things that are part of that normal spectrum of human suffering, and instead of contextualizing it as you and I do, which is as a crucible for a much deeper experience and understanding of what it means to be human, I know you had in your life, as I've had in mine in deep periods of sadness, a choice to make. And the whole world has seen you make it. Um, <clears throat> and I know that you knew that the world was watching. Um, is, she going to be, is she going to be the victim or is she going to be the victor? Is it going to be someone about him 10 years later? Uh, is the world going to say, well, it's too bad, you know, Kristen Carlson, she never really got over it. Or is it going to be, wow, look at that girl, wow, something wondrous is happening and has happened for all the world to see. And I, I see particularly it's concerning to me <clears throat> in the lives of young people because the FDA warns that for people uh, 25 and younger, Christine, antidepressants actually increase rather than decrease um, the risk of suicide. Oh, wow. So we have this spike in suicide and we have a spike in antidepressant use, and there's actually no statistical evidence that it has decreased um, uh, suicide risk. And like I said, FDA warns about that for young people. So the medical community, the psychotherapeutic community, the, the pharmacological community more than any, a kind of pharmacological industrial complex, has appropriated the word depression. And people will say things like, oh, you're minimizing mental illness. I'm not meant minimizing mental illness at all. I think... We all know with bipolar and schizophrenia and so forth, there are times when psychotherapeutic drug usage can be even life-saving. But what's happening today is that people, things that are not mental illnesses are, you know, people say, oh, depression is something different than deep sadness, it's brain chemistry changes. Well, first of all, there is no blood test for depression. Right. It's, it's a questionnaire. There's no blood test like for leukemia. And, and when people say, who are you to hone in on a medical issue? My, my point is that I'm, my assertion here is that not everything being called depression today, or at least being appropriated for, uh, as a quote-unquote disease, is a medical issue. It is a spiritual disease. And one of the things, as a student of comparative religion and philosophy, and the three I focus on in the book, as you mentioned earlier, are Buddha and Moses and Jesus, but all the great religious and spiritual systems, the whole core, the whole core, the whole foundational myth is whether you're talking about Buddha saying life is suffering or the suffering of, suffering of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt or the suffering of Jesus on the cross. That's what all great spiritual uh, uh, understanding pertains to, is that life is suffering and how that is transcended. And the, the, the phrase dark night of the soul, 
You know, people didn't just start getting depressed. People didn't just start experiencing heartbreak or catastrophe. Women were losing their husbands and, and heartbroken over it thousands of years ago. Absolutely. But you, humanity would not have evolved had we not been imbued with the capacity to take a hit, you know, whether it's injury or disease. And this is true not only in terms of the immune system for our physical body, but a kind of immune system in our, in our, um, in our, in our psyches. That's what grief is. And that's what you've experienced, what I've experienced, what many people have experienced. But you have to work with your mind and the natural, the natural course of healing and not see every sad moment as a disorder. Right. You know, people say that we've slapped this label of disorder, depressive disorder, anxiety disorder. Our whole civilization is a disorder. Absolutely. In terms of anxiety. And that's what the book goes into is how our entire modern culture is predicated on depressing thoughts. Right. We're separate. The thought that we have to struggle to get ahead, the thought that we have to compete with each other, to transact rather than relate, the thought that physical life is all there is, the thought that we are our bodies. These thoughts are depressing. Absolutely. And they us to, to a desperate grasping to things, which even if we get them, will only bring temporary happiness, as, as Buddha said, which is only a setup for more despair. So in a way, surprising more people are depressed. And so that's what I, I wanted to write about that. Sometimes on my Facebook page, I, I know you must do this too, it's just interesting to throw something out there that's deeper and you wonder how many people are going to get it. You know, And I remember one time... I mean, I learned so much. I awakened so deeply in grief. And it wasn't as if all of this information I hadn't been exposed to prior to losing Richard, but it never really resonated in my being, like in my soul, the way it resonated in grief. And and like you say, like it was like I suddenly felt awake to wisdom that I had I knew on a visceral level, but I didn't really understand until I went through the heartbreak. Well, sometimes I say to people and I wonder, like, they don't really get it. I say, what you what you see you can, is actually not real, but what you feel is what's real, but you can't see it. And I love how all of these just very deep ideas are throughout this book that, you know, you, you talk about that, that we live in the illusion of the ego. And I just, I love so, you, you deal with the ego so completely too, you know, in such a deep understanding of that the ego really is that negative part of ourselves that wants to destroy us, that wants us to even, like you even say, even kill us. And the beauty of what you can go through, like, and, and this is why I wrote Heartbroken Open too, was because I felt that that time period of grief was so fertile a ground to stand on, but that it could be so lost if somebody didn't take that stand in their lives. It said the same thing I had to say when I lost Richard, I said, Geez, you know, like Richard changed my life by being in my life to such a huge degree. I would never have been even close to the woman I am today without having been loved the way he was able to love me and being healed. You know, just even living in his presence was a healing. Um, but on a daily basis, it was amazing. And but I thought to myself when I lost him, it was a very immediate conversation. And I said, if this doesn't count for 10,000 years, 10,000 years of my soul growth. If this doesn't count, then this is for naught. And I have to glean every ounce and squeeze every ounce of learning from this experience of loss. And I, I knew in my heart and soul, I was called to it. And there was no other way because I couldn't imagine that losing him wasn't supposed to count for 
as much as having him. Wow, that's that's very profound. Everything that you just said is exactly, exactly the point of the book. And what you just said that I couldn't believe that losing him did not account as much as having him. And that's what I have felt. And once again, I'm not trying to in any way compare them at all. But in terms of my congressional campaign, I agree with you. I grew as much from having to get over it as from going through it. Of course. But anytime, I mean, what a huge, like, like for you, like that was like a huge expression of your soul work. Mm -hmm. And you had a vision and you knew, like, and I felt that whenever, I mean, I supported your campaign and I knew that you had a vision for what could be for the world. And I don't think that you were grieving only for yourself. I think you're grieving because the world isn't where your vision was. And I, and that's a huge, like when you grieve for, grieve for humanity, which is also a parallel that I drew, I knew that when I would cry on the floor and I would be so devastated over Richard, I could feel every woman that lost a son in the wars. I could feel every woman that lost her husband, you know, that's, that's, that's a very deep grief when you grieve for larger than yourself. It, it's a very huge annihilation you go through. You know, you're not only going through a personal ego annihilation, you're going through a collective annihilation. And that, that's huge. It's no wonder you felt that way. Well, that was actually, uh, th there were some other parts of that where it was kind of the opposite of that in a way. But in terms of that being true in general of what you just said, one of the... Um, one of the things I point out in the Jesus chapter is when the, the women went to claim Jesus' body and they were told he is not there, he is risen. Metaphysically, we are talking about an annihilation of self. We, we are talking about how grief sometimes is a process of the death of one aspect of who you were and the birth of someone new. Right. And also, also when, um, when the angels said to the, to the women, he is not here, the part of you that dies is often the part of you that you didn't want. And it took this, this, this painful situation because people grieve for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you've talked about, you know, the grief of a loved one, uh, the grief of a, of a professional opportunity. Many people grieve all kinds of things. And also one of the things that is, um, you know, whether it's somebody's sickness or whether it's somebody's failure or whether it's somebody's having been abandoned or whatever it is, the pain is the same, but the healing, excuse me, the pain is all different, but the healing is the same. Right. And the healing does have to do with, as you said, going into that deep, deep place, and everything you said was so eloquent, and so much what the book is about as well, is this place of wisdom that you could not have gone through. You know, the Course in Miracles says it's not up to you what you learn. It's merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. And sometimes it is through pain. Sometimes it can be through joy. But these profound experiences we go through, and we're living at a time where there is a cultural trend to emotionally flatline. Nobody wants to get too high or too low. And that's why the issue of handling these experiences and contextualizing these experiences as holy, sacred initiations into a deeper, deeper aspect of self is, is so significant. And particularly for young people, I think... You know, a lot of the people who are being given the antidepressants in ways that we might question are in their 20s. And you and I know, in addition to the FDA talking about how 25 and younger the suicide risk increases, in addition to that, I think it's so important, Christine, that, that people like you and me and others point out to people who are younger, the 20s are hard. Oh, they are. They're, the, they're some of the hardest years of your life. <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. 
you're crazy. And the fact that you, the fact that the, that the soul feels bereft on this plane, given the fact that this plane is dominated by such insane fear-based thinking, means that your soul is in touch with itself. Right. Well, and in the 20s, when you think about it, it's all about ego. It really is. It's like we've trained our kids to grow up and identify with what they do. And of course, most people in their 20s have no idea what they want to do with the meaning of their life. They, they just, they, they have no idea. So they feel lost and they feel separate and they feel confused because of course their ego is separating them. And, and the, you know, the reason I put the Buddha chapter in there is because Buddha said that the things of this world can only bring temporary happiness at best. So we live in a society that, that, that trains these young people and trains everyone to think if you go out and get this or make that happen, then you'll be happy. But this is a setup because even if you get those things or make those things happy, if they are something outside yourself, something other than your ability to give and to receive love, then it will not bring permanent happiness to your life. That and I so think for, our, for us to recognize that, it, that we have developed a kind of culture of depression. Another thing that I go into in the book that I think is important is that because of the psychotherapeutic model that we've adopted over the last really 100 years, um, we tend to look at individual suffering only in terms of the individual. And sometimes it's important to know it's not just me suffering. All of us are suffering. They're, they're, and we're all suffering over the same thing. Now, that would be different than the loss of a loved one, of course. But a lot of the things that make people sad are things that make a lot of other people sad, too. But if, we only see my, if I only see my sadness in terms of my individual pain, then I may not appreciate how important it is that I work with other people to change that cultural condition that is making everyone sad. That's such a great ISIL, point. ISIL is making everyone sad. Uh, the environmental breakdown and what we're doing to the, to the, to the planet today and, and culture change, uh, uh, climate change is making everyone sad. Um, the stress that so many people are under financially is making a lot of people sad. It's not just this person who's, having a, who's feeling squeezed or that person. The fact that these kids have this, these profound college debts well, once again, some kid might think, well, I'm depressed because I have all these college, you know, loans to pay off and I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay them back and I won't get a job that gives me enough money to pay the loan. So should I drop out of school? Well, it's very important that that young person not see that only in terms of their pain because we need a lot of young people to see it as a, as a collective issue so that they will make the political changes that are necessary. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. That's okay. such a great point. Well, I want to just touch on the fact that um, I'm going to talk, talk to you a little bit about, do you remember when I had that stalker in my life? Yes, tell me. Yeah, so um, it's been really interesting because I also saw that as a part of my initiation, and I wrote about that in one of my blogs about, um, I called them all these different initiatory challenges that I had after Richard died. Now, why I needed so many, I have no idea. <laughs> I always think, wow, my ego must have been really huge because I must have created a massive series of initiations, you know, and, but I really did begin to see all of these different incidences that occurred within the same five-year time period as just perfect incidences to really finally hone me in the way you talk about it in the book, you know, to hone my soul and how, like, I think sometimes we choose, like, different lifetimes, or this lifetime for me has definitely been a very high curriculum. You know, it's been definitely designed so that I could 
really choose love in almost every situation. You know, so what ended up happening with that stalker is after seven years of a lot of harassment and some terror on my family, a lot of emotional terror on my family, he was finally arrested and he was sentenced to prison for four and a half years. Now, what I, the only thing I really said on my Facebook page, which I didn't, I didn't have any, it was all done in the UK and I didn't offer any interviews in the UK. So they went to my Facebook page and the only thing I said about the whole situation was that, you know, we never wished him ill will. We knew that he was ill and that um, I said that, you know, I really forgave him long ago, like for what he was doing, because that was really the only way to get through it was to be in a state of forgiveness, even as it was going on. And that I have forgiven um, him for for the for all of the emotional abuse that he, you know, that he issued out on our family and that it was a peak for me into what it means to be truly insane. And that that's what I gleaned from the situation. And it was interesting because I got a little bit of backlash from the press. I didn't care, but they, they sort of almost criticized me for being in forgiveness about it as if that would be an invitation for more or something. And I love what you say about forgiveness and throughout your book and especially what resonated with me was that forgiveness is really our freedom and it is what creates miracles in our lives. And would you like to talk on that a little bit more? Because I, I, that just really hit my heart and soul. Well, thank you. And it's a big one. If, if a person is depressed today, or they're sad, they're, they're not commonly asked, well, is there anyone you're not forgiving? Because people don't put those two together. But it is everything because what you just said is true. As the Course Miracle says, miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. A lack of forgiveness is a deflection of a miracle. It is withholding the stuff that brings forth miracles. So the issue is if you're, when you're sad is what is going to come from this? Am I going to be a victim or am I going to be a victor? Am I going to be bitter or am I going to be better? Am I going to be someone who is defeated by this or am I going to emerge into a glorious new beginning? And our capacity to forgive is our capacity to nullify the effects of what was done to us. It doesn't mean that you condone what was done to you. Once again, this man was held accountable in a court of law. The issue is, to the extent to which I focus on the reality of what was done to me, because of the power of my focus, I will not be able to not be at the effect of what was done to me. So, as the Course in Miracles says, the warden can't leave the prison any more than the prisoner can. That's so it's right. a way of, of withdrawing our attachment to the plane on which the transgression occurred so that we are no longer experiencing the effects of the transgression. That's and it's beautiful. Huge. It, it's huge, and forgiveness, because it's like people who you see get divorced. I mean, we see this all the time. And they just the heart becomes cramped and the heart becomes bitter. And what this does, among other things, is it means that new love can't get in. And that's, we need that love to heal. So a lot of times when people are depressed and they're just saying, well, no, I'm depressed, but they're holding on to anger, holding on to bitterness. Now, once again, I'm not saying it's easy. And, and you and your situation weren't saying it was easy, but it went on for years. You know, some of the people think if we talk about forgiveness, we're being glib. No, we're not being glib. We're not saying this, oh, okay, I'll just forgive. It's a process and it's a journey. But when you understand how the universe operates, you know that if you do not choose to forgive, you do not choose to heal. Exactly. 
You choose to hold and, on to something that you can't change anyways. And that's why in the book, you know, it, it doesn't just say over-medication is not the answer. It's saying spiritual principles are the answer. You know, the Course in Miracles says you think you have many different problems, but you really only have one, and that is separation from God. So sometimes it's not only what happened to us. It's how we choose to then think about what happened to us. Once again, that's not said glib. It's, it's not easy. I'm sure that in all the things that you've been through, and like you said, you've had many initiatory moments. They, they haven't been easy. You didn't just step, you know, get up the next day and go, okay, I'll be a positive and spiritual now. That's no. <laughs> but it was about keeping your eye on, on the light, on the horizon of where you wanted to go. And that was you wanted to keep gazing into the reality beyond the illusion, knowing that if you did and you kept your eyes there, that through the power of God, you would get to that reality beyond the illusion. And then when you do get to that reality beyond the illusion, how many people are you take with you? Yeah, absolutely. I looked at it like incredible training on some level, you know, that, that it, if, that I, you know, it wasn't positive and it was heinous in a lot of ways, but I looked at it like, wow, this is what kind of amazing training is this, you know, that I, that I still maintain what I'm doing and I have to break through the illusion on a daily basis, you know, and, and keep doing that. And in some ways it just kept me so awake and so did several other things that happened too. But, but each one of them, um, that were all difficult situations, they all had a resolution. And in my heart, I knew they would. I mean, in my heart, I, I had, I held faith knowing that at some point, you know, life was going to, you know, sort of flow again for me in a much smoother way. And I, and it always was flowing. Like that was, that was the beauty of it is that I, I, I had some pretty negative things going on amidst a very beautiful life. And I always say to people, you know, if you can see that, that it's, I think we tend to just focus so much on the negative and, and those deep challenges that we forget that there's all this beauty happening concurrently. Well, you know, one of the things that, once again, why I presented the Moses and the Buddha and, and the Jesus, if you look at depression as, you know, and, and another one that you see the, that whole, uh, that whole scam away is not only that you were on these pills, but you should expect to be on them for the rest of your life, which is basically saying there's something wrong with you. You have this disorder and you, you are a victim of it. When you understand spiritual uh, um, intelligence, once again, Buddha did see suffering for the first time. That is what led him to begin his journey to enlightenment. He did say that life is suffering, but that wasn't the point. That's the beginning. The end point is his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. Moses did uh, rescue and deliver the Israelites who were, were sufferers as slaves in Egypt and then as sufferers in the, in the desert. But that was not the ultimate point. That was the beginning. The point is that they were delivered to the promised land. Jesus did uh, suffer on the cross, but that's the beginning. The crucifixion is the beginning. The, the, the ultimate point is the resurrection. So if you just look at what man hath wrought, then you see the darkness. But if you open your mind to what God's final word is and, and the idea that God always gets the final say, that every night, you know, it's a dark night of the soul, but there is no night not followed by uh, morning, no matter how dark it is. And every winter is followed by spring. So spiritual faith is not blind, it's visionary. It's an understanding of how the universe operates. That once, once God shows his hand in here, that we're, this is not the end of the story. That whatever this darkness is, whatever this pain is, this too shall pass. This is not the end of the story. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between 
complete hopelessness and holding on in the knowledge that this too shall pass. And this is going to lead to something even better because I will be deeper. I will be wiser. I will be more open to love. I will, I will never fail to appreciate every day. I will never fail to appreciate the people that I love. I will never fail to, you know, in, in, among other things, one of the points I make in the book also, and I, I know you know this, suffering gives you x-ray vision into the suffering of other people. Like you said, when you suffered over Richard and you said something very profound that you felt that you went into that place of realizing the pain of every mother who had ever lost a child and every woman who had ever lost, lost a love or a husband. And then you, and I'm sure that you feel this way, you, you, you never since then have ever looked at a widow the same way. No. no. You know that pain. And so your service and your ability to, to heal is so much greater, really, because of the compassion that you now understand. I think that's one of the most dangerous things about the fact that we, we're so into desensitizing ourselves from our own pain in our society. You know, we take this cheap yellow smiley face and we pour it over everything like, be happy, be happy. Exactly. And if we are either medicating or self-medicating or distracting ourselves, you know, I always felt that if, if we were really in touch with our own pain, would we have let George Bush invade Iraq as easily as we did? You know, when I saw those bombs falling and a shock and awe, and some people seemed to think it was like fireworks in a football game, when really it was fire raining down on women and their children and men and women and children who couldn't protect their children who hadn't done anything to hurt anyone. And I, we have, where are we, how, how are we so desensitized to our own pain that we're not fully, fully realizing the pain of others? You know, I remember before the Iraq invasion, there was this woman, maybe you've met her, Laurie Meadoff. Mm, no. She did, she did these amazing things. I don't know if she's still doing it, but she did these and, and today it wouldn't even be that hard, but, but in those days it was like a big deal that she was hooking up on video, young people, one part of the world with young people, another part of the oh, world. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and there were these high school kids in, in the United States who were hooked up with these high school kids in Baghdad. It was about two or three weeks before the invasion, but when everybody was talking about it. And first of all, when they showed these kids, you could see the faces on the Americans, particularly the American boys. Because these girls in Baghdad were gorgeous. They had on things like Hard Rock Cafe t-shirts. And you know how, the, how God operates. There was one girl, Christine, and she was totally gorgeous. And she was totally hot. And she was totally brilliant. And you could tell the American boys, like looking at her, they didn't even know how to put all this together. And, and they were talking about how, yeah, we need to invade Iraq. And these kids were saying to the Americans, that's us. That's us that you're talking about. That's us. And these, these, these cool kids in America, you could tell they, they didn't even know how to put this together. And one, one boy said, yeah, well, uh, but Saddam's a bad guy. And she said, so we die because he's a bad guy? Yeah. We die because he's a bad guy? And it, it, it was, it was, these kids were shattered. But you could tell that the propaganda had so separated them. From, from compassion and from an understanding of the suffering of other people. And all that that will do, of course, is bring suffering onto you. We compound the suffering of our own. You know, if you desensitize yourself to your own suffering, it will come back in another way. And if you desensitize yourself from the suffering of other people, it will as well. So our ability, you know, you can't skip the crucifixion and go right to the resurrection. That's not transcendence. That's denial. So that's why when you, when you look at the story of the Exodus, you know, the story of slavery is, is an important part of the story. 
Buddha seeing suffering for the first time is an important part of the story. Jesus suffering on the cross is an important part of the story. If you leave that out and you separate yourself from that and you disconnect from that, you actually end up causing more suffering for yourself and for others. And also you fail to invoke the glory that lies beyond that. Yeah, and I love what you say in a practical sense that, you know, grief is not something that you can busy yourself out of. It's not something that you can rush, you know, that so much, you know, as a culture, we really don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to embrace those feelings. And and so, you know, we're rushed right to the memorial service. And then right after that, you know, people are just saying, oh, stay busy, and then you won't have to think about it. And it was just the opposite of what I knew intuitively to do in my process. I absolutely knew that there was not going to be any rushing this, that you can't have been living with somebody in love with them for 25 years and be over it in even a year, you know, that that it's it. And you're also doing yourself such a disservice by not honoring, really honoring that with that, those feelings, you know, allowing those feelings to come forward and to you know, be healed. Because I do believe that when we go through loss, we're not just going through the one loss we've gone through. We're going through all the undenied losses and those aspects of ourselves that we've never really healed to begin with. So it, it's like I always called grief the great house cleaner. It just cleans house. You know, it, it really does just purify all your nooks and crannies if you allow yourself to empty it and go through it. Absolutely. Beautifully said, and, and you see in the book, and I know you do see already, the book agrees with you 100%. You know, people act today like, your mother died two months ago, aren't you over it yet? <laughs> you know, and there was a time in our society where people made much more room for it. And also there was a time, I mean, we of course celebrate the, the fact that, what, that medicine has come up with so many ways to keep people alive longer. But what's psychologically unhealthy is the way we have peripheralized death. Our children used to be around it more. They grandmommy died in the house and so forth. And as a consequence, like you said, people try to distract ourselves uh, rather than open up. I wouldn't say embrace, but make ourselves available uh, to an experience that's 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 part of life. And once again, that normal spectrum of human suffering. You know, Carl Jung said that failure to deal with the topic of death robs the second half of life of its meaning. Mm. Not only about losing other people, but when we get to a certain age, the realization that, you know, I talk to friends of mine, you know, I'm 63, and you become aware at a certain point you're in chapter three. And it's not macabre. It, you know, and that's another reason why spiritual understanding is so important, because once you understand that the body itself is just a suit of clothes, that doesn't mean you're, you're excited about, you know, dying, but... It, you you open to the realization in a way that can, that can be surrounded by peace and not pain. So it, it, it's all about developing the spiritual musculature to be able to not only endure painful experiences, but to be able to transform them as well. And yeah. our society has, particularly with the over-medication issue, has just gotten to the point where people are taking antidepressants like candy um, self-medicating, if not with that, then in any other way, because like you said, we're just afraid to feel a moment's pain. And you see a lot, and you see this in, in people raising their children as well. Uh, people going to, you know, even little things like parents going to the teacher to try to talk the teacher out of giving the child a bad grade when the child deserves a bad grade. 
And I, I know that when my daughter, when we, you know, you're a mom, obviously. Um, when my daughter was growing up, I remember certain disappointments she had in life, certain tears that she would cry. And I remember being happy that she was going through what she was going through while she was still at my house because I could help her develop some emotional musculature, coping skills, ability to know how to handle sadness, how to atone, how to look at where she might have made mistakes, where she needed to change, how she needed to forgive herself, forgive other people, bless other people, um, be able to accept that God was taking care of her too. You know, we don't just prepare our children for success in life. You know, not everybody's going to be totally nice to our kids the way we tried to be, totally adore our kids the way we did. And so our preparing our children for a world that will not always be totally kind to them, just by the nature of human existence, I think is part of a parenting skill, don't you? I do. I One of the things that I see over and over again these days is this um, way that parents want to anesthetize their kids from failure, from um, sadness, from, yeah. I mean, I even had one friend once, um, she, she didn't want to tell her kids that her dog had cancer and was dying. She wanted to just um, have the dog tell the kids that the dog had run off so that they wouldn't have to deal with the fact that their dog was dying and that had, you know, and, and had died eventually. And I, I remember just saying to her, you know, she was she was sort of asking my opinion and I said, well, I, I don't I feel like that's really doing your kids a disservice in a lot of ways. And first of all, you're not really honoring their um, resiliency. You know, you're, you're assuming that they don't have enough resiliency to get through this. And, and also, you know, all of these small ways that people go through disappointments and loss are just ways in which they're prepared for the bigger things that are to come that are going to come. And I said, you cannot anesthetize your children from the fact that they're going to lose you someday. You know, that's going to happen. And I said, you know, I, I just feel like that's doing your kids a huge disservice. And I've seen it time and time again, whether um, a parent has an illness that's a life-threatening illness and they don't want their kids to know. And I'm like, well, what happens to you if, if you die on that operating table and you didn't prepare your children for that? At least they didn't even have you know, those days and weeks and moments with you to say goodbye because they didn't know. I mean, I, if I were a kid, I'd be really resentful of that after the fact. <laughs> yeah, of course, in both those cases, there's the there's also the issue of how the, the love that the parent felt that they just of didn't course. want to be sad. But you're so right, because if a child is protected from all pain as a child, then as an adult, they're just going to reach for whatever the external source is to protect them because they didn't develop the musculature. They didn't develop the coping skills. And we have, I think, in our society today, I, I call it a crisis of adulthood. We have too many men who are boys, and we have too many women who are girls. And I think one of the things that makes us grow up is these, these um, coming-of-age issues, things that we point to in our lives. Boy, I grew up when that happened. You know, I, I had a personal tragedy that happened in my life in my 20s, and not only did, did I become a woman because of it, my career started after it. I, I came out of that experience knowing things and understanding things and able to do things. And I talk about that in the book that I didn't before. So once you allow the mystery of life to, to really manifest in your experience, you're less afraid of life uh, because you swim in deeper waters. Mm. And, you, and, you, and you, learn, you, know, you learn how to swim in those waters by being thrown into them. And 
Yeah, and you and I are both women, and so many people who are listening to your to your to your podcast right now, so many people who read your blogs feel, as I'm sure you and I do, which is, can we just have this conversation, please? Yeah. Um, why are we going around pretending like we got to be happy all the time? Like, not only are we suffering in private, so is everybody else. Yeah, out of Facebook, off of Instagram, off Snapchat, all of that. Yeah, you're right. People are suffering, and it's and you aren't alone. And I think that's one of the most beautiful messages that we can leave our listeners with today is that, you know, you do go through the dark night of the soul. So do I, and so does everyone else. And and it and it happens many times throughout our lifetime. It's not. I don't believe enlightenment is something that you attain once. I believe it's it's longer periods of enlightenment. You know? I think there are those. I mean, I think when we look at the Buddha and the Jesus and, and those, I mean, I think there are people who have yeah. lived and, and might live. I mean, I, I've met a couple of people. I kind of wonder, I think, I think he's always, all the, yeah, I think he's all the way there. <laughs> uh, certainly I'm not, but I, I, you know, the Course in Miracles says you, you are not perfect or you would not have been born, but it is your mission to become perfect here. And I, I think given the state of the world today, I, I think holding to the idea that we're on our way to some higher, more evolved place, and that that there is a state where we can get there, and it's a lock. Uh, that would be quite beautiful. I think so too. Well, Marianne, thank you so much. I I can't thank you enough. What a, an absolute beautiful, beautiful book. Um, they can find your book, um, Tears to Triumph, on Amazon, and and how else? They can go to my uh, my website, Marianne.com. Uh, I will be launching uh, the book on June 13th. Okay. It will be a free live stream, or people can attend live in Los Angeles at the Saban Theater. All that information is on Marianne.com. If they uh, go to Marianne.com to pre-order the book, from there they can get a free video, or can go to uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble. You know how all that works. There, yeah. If you want that book, tears to try if they can find it. Okay, great. Well, I just thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you and just what a beautiful book. I can't wait to read the rest of it. Thank you so much, Christine. All my love to you. Okay, you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff with Christine Carlson. Chris invites you to join her for the brand new What Now program, a six-week offering carefully designed to take you on your own unique journey through life-altering transition and lead you to self-discovery and your most vibrant life. Receive access to powerful audio teachings, an in-depth workbook, and deeply valuable insights on passion and joy from a beloved teacher. Visit christinecarlson.com to learn more about how you can be part of the What Now program.